one of the grandfathers of the um, Vipassana tradition uh, in the West is Mahasi Sayada, a monk from Burma during the uh, last half of the last century. And the distinguishing contribution of Mahasi Sayadaw to the Dharma being available in the West is that he was uh, a scholar and after doing his studies he decided to actually practice what he'd read the Buddha taught and he got some instruction, some some brief instruction from uh, an elder and respected monk at the time in Burma. And then he he began his own practice. And I can't really say he invented the way of teaching, but he found a way of practicing that was very effective. And he made some adjustments based on his own insight, his own intuition. And uh, after uh, some not so long period of time, he had some notable success. So he tried it out. He, he, he offered his method of teaching to some of his relatives who were lay people, aunts and uncles, whatever. And uh, they, they also had some rather surprising and, um, I say quick, but maybe unexpected uh, success with practice. So he became known throughout Burma uh, for his particular method of teaching mindfulness and the development of insight. And he was invited by um, some rather renowned uh, people in Rangoon to open a meditation center for lay people. And he opened it in 1949, and there were just a lot of uh, uh, Burmese householders uh, like ourselves who were really interested in practicing at that time. And uh, the, the, the meditation center became quite well known, famous, and just hundreds of thousands of people came uh, and went through the, his training. And in fact, monks who came to practice in this way then dispersed throughout Burma and opened another four or five hundred centers teaching the same thing. So it was a pretty pretty dramatic and notable um, development of meditation practice itself in Burma among lay people. And it is from that monastery or his teaching that uh, Manindra, who was a, a Bengali Indian, went to uh, Burma and stayed at the Mahasi Meditation Center for eight years, both practicing meditation, uh, practicing uh, Vipassana insight, as well as jhanas, concentration, and studying the teachings of the Buddha. And when he left, he went to Bodhgaya, where he was the kind of the caretaker of the Burmese Vihara, where Joseph uh, Goldstein practiced, Deepama, the Indian woman, practiced. And 
eventually Sharon Salzburg and uh, others, other Western teachers or senior Western teachers, um, received the teachings of Vipassana practice, mindfulness in Vipassana practice there. So he's pretty well regarded and I think the, the important to important also to remember or to know is that he had the idea that you don't have to be a monk or nun for life in order to get the essential teachings and practice effectively to really liberate the mind. But if you uh, undertake regular intensive retreats, uh, and in Burma the understanding is um, if you if you live your life for ten months of the year just doing your household and civic and professional responsibilities, but undertake a, a one to two month retreat annually, then you 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 can really accomplish a lot as far as freeing the mind, liberating the mind. So what we what what we get in in the West or what we've received in the West is both the technique suitable for lay people, the idea of a limited time uh, intensive retreat rather than a lifetime of monastic practice. And we also get a very clear map because Mahasi Sayadaw had a very clear map of the progression of insight that unfolds with the development of the continuity of mindfulness, mindful awareness that is helpful for many people to um, use in their uh, in the guidance of their practice. So I want to speak about um, Mahasi Sayadaw's. Um, he called it an admonition. I like to call it encouraging counsel for a practice, so that we can begin to put the work that we're doing here, that we've been doing here for these few days, into a broader perspective. And you can really see where this practice fits in the whole um, expanse of the teachings of the Buddha and in the development of our own heart and mind uh, as we move toward, as we cultivate the mind and move towards greater understanding and liberation. I want to read his encouraging counsel and then offer a commentary on it. Do good deeds, avoid causing harm, and purify your mind. These are the teachings of the Buddha. It is generosity that one can rely on for one's happiness, wealth, and humanity. Living in harmony, too, is a real refuge in that it makes one pleasing, delightful, and free from destructive states of mind. Let there be only a few things that you attend to, a few words that you say, and a few hours that you spend sleeping. Love solitude. Be willing to learn and seek good friends. These are the six factors contributing to good dhammas. Continuous mindful awareness leads to insightful understanding of the causal relationship between the mind and the body, their impermanence, unreliability, and insubstantiality. Such wisdom leads to lasting peace. 
This meditation center should be a quiet place where we strengthen faith, practice generosity, live in harmony, calm and liberate the mind. I sometimes think that that is about the most succinct but expansive teachings of the Buddha that you could get. So let me just comment a little bit. When Mahasi Sayadaw offered this admonition, it was really not a scolding kind of finger-pointing spiritual teaching, but it was really a call to uh, aspire and an encouragement to recognize uh, the goodness within yourself and the uh, ability to develop more goodness with the right guidance and with encouragement. So he was very encouraging in his uh, call and encouragement and, and uplifting uh, calling forth. And his counsel or his admonition offered a lot of, offers a lot of advice, um, instruction, and guidance, just practical guidance. So when he says, do good deeds, avoid causing harm, and purify your mind, these are the teachings of the Buddha. This is what the Buddha said when asked, well, what is it that the Buddha teaches? There's, there has been a, a sequence of Buddhas. We live in the time of Gautama Buddha, who lived somewhere between 25 and 2600 years ago. But it is said that all Buddhas teach the same thing, which is, as I said, to do good deeds really invites us to consider how we can be a benefactor to others rather than a bother. And the Buddha identified what are called the ten wholesome deeds. And it's instructive to hear what the ten wholesome deeds are of the Buddha. The first is to offer charity to the poor, to be generous. But also to practice morality, living uh, in harmony with one another, with a sense of ethical um, purity or an ethical consideration, and to develop the mind. The next is to be reverent and offer respect to those who are deserving. To serve others, offer service, whatever it is you can to others. To share the merit of your good actions with others and to rejoice in the merit that others make. These are, these are two, I mean, sharing, in, sharing your own merit and sharing, rejoicing in the merit of others, hardly on our radar, really, as two of the ten wholesome deeds that the Buddha taught. And the last three are to listen to the Dhamma, to teach the Dharma or to share your understanding of the Dharma and to straighten one's views, meaning to hear the teachings on right view and to practice in order to clarify right view.
It's amazing that in the kind of retreat that we're doing here, so much of this is embedded in the format of the retreat and in the practices we do without really being identified as such. But to, of course, practice morality and develop our mind is pretty obvious. To be respectful of the teachings of the Dharma. If we listen carefully, if we consider it honestly, sincerely, and try to apply it, this is being respectful. It's not so much that you need to be respectful to us or reverent uh, to us, but to be reverent is, is to revere, to, to hold, the val- hold the teachings of the Dharma with reverence, to revere, to see the, the goodness of them. Then to share, oh, to serve others. Well, we don't do much uh, direct serving of others here. We do, we do have some service to the, to the center. And actually just in sharing our practice with each other in the space of practice or with uh, the questions that you ask in the hall or in the groups and just being respectful of each other as we practice is one of the ten wholesome deeds, Buddha said, that develops the mind, cultivates the goodness in the mind. Listening to the Dharma is always a good development of the heart, but not always easy to do. Because sometimes, you know, and teachers face this this question regularly, um, sometimes we have to share teachings of the Dharma which are not easy to hear. And yet, it's our responsibility as Dharma fairers or Dharma guides that we, sh- that, we, that we bring the whole teachings, not just the parts that we like, not just the parts that, are, um, that people want to hear, but that we bring the whole package. You know, and sometimes um, we can feel a little um, not apprehensive, but having understood for ourselves the value of the Dharma, uh, we, feel, we can feel confident in sharing it, but we never know how it's going to be received. So thank you very much for listening. <laughs> and then the... Uh, listening to the Dharma, and then teaching the Dharma. You know, I don't know if I told you the story, but uh, after I'd been practicing for 10 years, Saidu Pandita came to America for the first time, and he taught a three-month course for 20 students, all of whom were teachers or those who were in a training program to become teachers. At least 19 of them were. I was also invited to attend the course because I was the director of the meditation center where the retreat was going to be held. But somebody forgot to tell Upandita that I wasn't a teacher. Not that he didn't know. but So I practiced for three months with him, and it was grueling. It was just really, really hard. Um, uh, and doing the best I could, I wasn't very skillful, uh, very slow learner. And at the end of my three-month retreat with him, when I went in to say uh, goodbye and thank you for the retreat, you know, he looked at me and he said, um, 
you should not teach the Dharma. <laughs> I, I mean, I wasn't, I, 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 I didn't have any aspirations to teach it. I, I was under no illusions that I had anything to share either. But it was, it was kind of funny, actually, because he was mistaken in thinking that somebody had thought I was a suitable candidate for, for teaching. Later he changed his mind, after I'd been to Burma, so... But he changed his mind. But initially, he was he was very really really pretty pretty forthright in his uh, <laughs> appraisal, <laughs> accurate I would say also. <laughs> but it's important to. But what he did say, rather than not teach the Dharma, he said, "You can share your experience of the Dharma," and I think that that's really the understanding that all of us have is more one of being um, a spiritual friend, a kalyanamita, rather than an authority. And I think that uh, all of us, all of you, can, can share to the extent that you have heard, have practiced, have realized, uh, have faith in, are encouraged by, inspired by. You can share with anyone. And it's valuable because you never know what someone is going to hear from you that really touches them in a way that they then turn to the Dharma as a, um, a path of practice in their life. To avoid causing harm is to act compassionately. And again, there are ten unwholesome deeds that are unskillful deeds that the Buddha admonished us to avoid. Three of them are the precepts of not killing, not stealing, and not uh, acting uh, out our sexual energy in a way that causes harm. Three of them are mental, meaning um, not to indulge in wrong views, not to cultivate or display ill will, and not to covet others' possessions. But amazingly, four of them are around speech. And I think that this is an area of um, Dharma practice that I won't say it's often overlooked, but it's not undertaken with maybe the fullness of what the Buddha pointed to. In that the the conditions for right speech are, of course, to speak the truth, to speak with a uh, loving kindness in the in the heart, in the mind when you speak. To speak gently, even if what you have to say is maybe hard for the listener to hear. And then to speak only what is beneficial. Meaning, not frivolous, not superficial, not, to, not gossip, but really, what is it that's going to benefit those who are listening? And then maybe the hardest the most challenging condition for right speech is to speak at the right time. Meaning, to find the time when it can be heard and beneficial by the listener. And this implies that there might not be a right time. So the, the option has to also always be that what we, what we think we've got to say to somebody even though it's beneficial and truthful and it would be good for them to hear it. I mean, uh, we could say it gently and with loving kindness. There might never be a time. 
suitable to say it. And that's a pretty steep, that's a pretty high bar for speaking. And yet we know how much uh, uh, confusion, pain, suffering, harm is caused by careless speech. So it's instructive that the Buddha had ten, had four um, harmful acts from speaking to pay attention to. And then to purify the mind, the third teaching of the Buddha is, is what we're doing here, both learning to calm the mind down through samadhi, continuity of mindfulness, but to understand, to develop understanding of the mind through the practice of insight as we're doing here. Mahasi Sayadaw goes on to say, it is generosity that one can rely on for one's happiness, one's wealth, and humanity. This is really an expression of um, compassion, gratitude, as all generosity is. And I want to uh, just tell you a story about my experience with generosity as being this kind of vehicle for one's happiness, one's wealth, and one's sense of humanity. Several years ago, I was um, working with a group in Portland, Oregon, and I would go to see them half a dozen times a year uh, to spend a day with them. And while I was there, I'd stay in the hotel in town, and I would go out for my meals in the nearby restaurants. And when I would go out, there just seemed to be an awful lot of homeless people in Portland. And uh, homeless people and panhandlers, and there's... Uh, I've always lived in the country, so I've never been quite so uh, familiar with so many. And I was uncomfortable. When I would walk past them on the street, I would feel self-conscious, a little guilty, uh, I didn't know if they were safe or if they were dangerous, and I didn't like the idea of being hit on for anything, and I would try to avoid them, and I'd go across the street and walk on the other side of the street, but they were over there too, and it was just generally unpleasant for me. And I was afraid, and I was self-conscious, and I felt uh, conflicted. So this, this, I noticed this for a few visits to town, a few visits to Portland, and then I realized, this is suffering. I am suffering with this experience. I feel afraid, I feel insecure, uh, I don't understand, I feel confused, uh, I don't know what's expected of me, if anything, I don't know how to respond. And so, in that recognition that I was suffering was also the recognition that they weren't causing me anything. It was my mind that was suffering. They're just living their life doing what it is that they have to do. So I made it a practice to... Um, I said, only I can do something about this. So I made it a practice to greet them. So I would walk out, and when I would come to a homeless person or two, or whatever they were, I would kind of get to their level, whether they were sitting on the ground or whatever it was, and just ask them, how are you doing? How's it going today? What do you need? And amazingly, 
I would say almost 100% of the time, they were very polite in responding. Occasionally there'd be somebody that was strung out or maybe mentally ill in a way that just didn't allow them to have that kind of connection. But for the most part, they were very polite and very um, uh, willing to engage in a conversation. And I wouldn't spend a lot of time with them, but I'd spend a few minutes just uh, talking to them and connecting with them and then offering some uh, token of support, a few dollars, five dollars or something, and you know, got some interesting answers to, well, how much do you need, or what do you need it for? Uh, so very honest, you know, maybe. <laughs> how do I know? But what I found is that just by being willing to approach them with a sense of, well, caring, caring about my own suffering, but in some sense caring about them and, and just really interested in who are you, what's what's your life like, what's going on there. And I realized that in every interaction that I had with any of them, what was really being offered was a recognition of their humanity. I care about you. That's all. I care about you. I can't fix your life. I can't solve your problems. I can't get you everything you want. But I can care. And I can offer a token, a gesture. And what I realized is that that's really what feels good. It felt good to me. It felt good to them to have that even even brief exchange because in every offering of a gift what we really give is love. That's it. And love never hurts. I mean, not that kind of love. And so, when Mahasi Sayadaw says, it is generosity that one can rely on for one's happiness, one's wealth and humanity, I get it. The wealth that we get is the wealth of connection, of love, seeing the value of what a few dollars is for another person, and even just having a sense of abundance. You know, not that I have, not that I ever had a lot of money, but I certainly always had a couple of dollars I could give to someone. And it's an instructive practice that we can only learn by doing. We can hear this, generosity, is, uh, one can rely on generosity for one's happiness, wealth, and, and humanity. You can believe that, but when you actually experience it, it really touches you, touches you deeply. <coughs> A lot of wisdom comes from practicing with awareness. And the practice that we're developing here of awareness is just for that purpose to recognize where in our life we're suffering. And to be able to recognize it, to come out of the confusion, delusion, and to just acknowledge, you know, this makes me feel uncomfortable, this is when I'm afraid, this is when I feel um, whatever it is, whenever, whatever kind of suffering you feel, is to take action once you see, once you recognize uh, how you're suffering, 
through awareness, then to find the appropriate vehicle or task or uh, practice for addressing it. Living in harmony too, Mahasisayara says, is a real refuge in that it makes one pleasing, delightful, and free from destructive states of mind. Of course, living in harmony is living with the precepts, living according to the precepts or not causing harm to ourselves or others by speaking or acting. And the harm that we cause ourselves by careless speaking and acting is that we feel guilty, we feel ashamed, we feel remorse, we feel regret, we feel badly about ourselves, we're judging ourselves sometimes harshly. Sometimes, if it's severe enough, we get punished. You know, whether it's by the law or uh, social ostracism or, or however it is. So that when we, when we act out of care and respect for the harmony of our personal relationships, then we will speak and we'll act with more confidence, more clarity, more compassion. And let's face it, those who are kind, considerate, compassionate, we like them. We like people like that. And it develops, or to the extent that we too practice that way, then we can rely on or we can see that it makes for harmony in our personal relationships. So Mahasisaya goes on to say, let there be only a few things that you attend to, a few words that you say, and a few hours that you spend sleeping. Wow. He must have been talking to the monks, the nuns, or something of Asia, because this is not our lifestyle, right? Let there be a few things that you attend to. Really, what he's pointing to is that the more you do, the more busy you are, the more uh, proliferation of activity there is in your life, the more dispersed the mind is. And the dispersed mind is not the collected mind. The collected mind is the stable mind, the mind that has more continuity of awareness. The more we do, the more we get engaged, the more we get entangled, the more dispersed the mind. And so we don't need to be reminded of how hard it is to collect the mind, to stabilize the mind, to bring the mind into the present moment. It's really difficult. We work hard at it on a retreat like this. And so Mahasi Sayadaw's encouragement is, to the extent that it's possible, take a look at what you can let go of. Now, I, I, I extrapolate this uh, teaching to uh, something that I think is really valuable for all of us to do on a regular basis is really to take a look at your life and recognize those behaviors, beliefs, activities, people that no longer serve your highest aspiration. And we are, I mean, we've all accumulated stuff and friendships, and behaviors, and beliefs over the course of our lifetime at times when we might not have been in 
interested in the Dharma or heading in a Dharmic direction or interested in spiritual practice, and yet they still hang around like so much baggage. And while we may not be actively mm, acting them out, still they're there siphoning off a little bit of commitment, dispersing the mind. And so it's helpful to, you know, take a look, to, to, to uh, review or clean out the addicts of our heart or the cellars of our mind, whatever it is, and recognize what we have really let go of already and be willing to acknowledge that. So I used to, I used to be, some would say, I still am, uh, into the Grateful Dead, music of the Grateful Dead. And, you know, I used to go to a lot of concerts and really enjoyed their shows and the whole rigmarole around the shows. And it was just great. It was just a lot of fun and it was a lot of um, friends and it was always a big event when they toured the East Coast. And then I got involved in the Dharma and I started practicing and doing retreats and really um, just kind of went in that direction for a few years. And then I had this most interesting thing happen. I was doing a two-week retreat in the meditation center in uh, Barrie, the last day of which was a Grateful Dead concert just 45 minutes away. So I said, hey, hey, what could be better? 14 days of calming down, clearing out, quieting down, opening up, and go to a show. Mistake. (laughs) The music was so loud, and the crowd was so, I mean, rough, I should say. It was so unpleasant. But I didn't know that before I went. Because I was still hanging on to this old idea of this is what was fun. This is what was enjoyable. This is what was you know, very uh, worth doing. But after some years of Dharma practice, I realized that my... Now I realized that my... Um, sensitivities had changed. The subtlety of what I could enjoy was different. While I still appreciate the music, I'm not sure the shows were necessary. And so I gave up going to the dead shows. But you know they're playing again. (laughs) The remaining members are playing again soon. Mm, I couldn't get tickets, unfortunately. Uh, So I still can appreciate the music. But what I, what, I, what I mean to point to is just that there are things that we have done in our life that we still carry around as ideas about ourselves, um, behaviors, beliefs, friends, that really don't... It's not that you have to... It's not that you have to push them away so much as realize that they no longer hold the place of or position in your heart that they did before and to let them go. So this is to really um, 
recognize what we can do without. Because the more we get entangled with, the more we do, the more activity in our life, the more multitasking we do, the more dispersed the mind. We know that. And the dispersed mind is vulnerable to the torments. Let there be only a few words that you say. Um, okay, I'll skip that one. No more words on that one. I've said enough words about that one already. Okay. But I think the, the important piece about the, the few words that we say is the fabric of our community whether it's your household, whether it's your work community, whether it's your practice, your Dharma community, whatever you, whoever you consider your community. But the fabric of our community is as fragile as the intention of a single word, the intention in speaking a single word. And if we're not careful, the harmony that we have woven into and throughout our communities by care and consideration, it can be... The fabric can be torn, can be rent, can be damaged by carelessness. And we know it's so easy to speak carelessly. And so just as a, a caution uh, to really consider, you know, when, when with friends, when, with, when within your community, just how careful you have to be. Again, I was in the monastery in Burma. Upandita had invited uh, a group of young monks to train with him uh, in Rangoon at the monastery. And these were the cream of the crop, so to speak, of the Burmese monks. They were the, the monks that were number one or two in the national exams, the, the monastic exams. Uh, they were those who had extraordinary meditation practice, of you know, just really uh, able to develop mindfulness and, and the unfolding of insight within a month or two. And they just were really exceptional. Uh, exceptionally committed and faithful and really bright. Uh, bright, bright-minded guys. And he invited them to come to Rangoon and train with him so that they could become, so they could learn English and they could learn how to teach the meditation and so that they could really become the representatives of this tradition uh, throughout the world, wherever they were invited. Well, occasionally I would have an opportunity to go to the section of the community of the monastery where they lived. Um, I needed instruction on how to wear my robes, and occasionally I had to talk to one or one of them or uh, for something. And while they were a close knit group within the monastery, and they knew each other well, I could not get any of them to talk about each other at all. They wouldn't say a thing about each other. Not even praise. And it was really striking because I understood or I, I saw that they so valued their participation in that group, in that community within the monastery, that they were careful about how they might represent or misrepresent or speak about one another. Now those, now that group of, there was 20, 20 to 30 of them, now they are the uh, monks in all of the Burmese Viharas, all in, in, in all the big cities of the U.S. 
and abroad, Singapore and London, places like that. And I've often thought it'd be nice to have a reunion of all of them because they're, they're really the, the representatives of the Mahasi Sayadaw tradition uh, in all the Burmese centers in, in all the cities. So let there be a few things that you attend to, a few words that you say, and a few hours that you spend sleeping. Oh, okay. Well, you've probably heard me say that in the monastery where I was practicing in Burma, you know, the schedule is wake up at 3, sit and walk alternate hours until 11 o'clock at night. And Upandita used to say, you can sleep as much as you like between 11 and 3. <laughs> and we might think, now the reason I'm saying this is we might think, and we all have this idea <clears throat> of how many hours we need to sleep a night. I need to sleep eight hours or nine hours or six hours or whatever it is for you. And while undertaking your general life and household responsibilities and work obligations, that may be so. But when you come on retreat, I would encourage you to really look, really check it out. How much do you actually need to sleep? And I'm not saying to be some heroic thing, 11, uh, just sleep 11 to, th- 11 to 3, but just to really practice until you're really tired. And when you wake up, get up, even if it's before the bell. Because in the monastery they used to say, the worst thing you can do for your practice is to lay around in bed waiting for the wake-up bell. We, when we wake up, you know, sometimes we wake up before the bell. And if we just lay there and we just toss and turn and let the mind just kind of roam around, and monkey mind we call it, it just disperses the momentum of the mindfulness that we've collected the day before. So I encourage you to be really respectful of your practice. Whatever it is you've done today, whatever momentum you've collected, Keep it, keep it going until you really are tired and need to rest. Then get your rest. But as soon as you wake up, get up and start again. Utejaniya also mentions, you know, we don't need to struggle, we don't need to push, you know, we just need to be continuous from the moment we wake up to the moment we fall asleep. It's not difficult to be mindful, it's difficult to be continuously mindful. But this is the, um, the challenge for all of us is how to develop the continuity sufficient to really develop insight, to seclude the mind from the torments and to develop insight. And while it sounds like this admonition is for those who are in intensive retreat, we can adapt it to, we can hear it also as guidance for our lay life. Maybe there's more things that we need to attend to than monks or nuns or retreatants. Maybe there's more words that we have to say and maybe there's more hours that we need to sleep. But still, there are areas of our life that we should pay attention to, uh, whether on retreat or uh, living our ordinary lifestyle. So then he goes on to say, love, solitude, be willing to learn, 
and seek good friends. Now, love solitude and seek good friends. Uh, are those mutually exclusive? No, not really. But I think the, the learning to love solitude is um, a recognition that when we spend all of our time with others, even if it's people that we enjoy or love uh, or have some common purpose, it, it can be energizing and it can be draining. And there's something about being alone, not just lonely, but learning how to be alone with ourself that is uh, very refreshing and recharging, really, of our batteries. And so often, we just don't take that, we don't make that opportunity for ourselves. But it's important because uh, practice, well, we, we also need to practice in community and practice with others. A lot of practice is by ourself. Or we say, it's a do-it-yourself job. And being able to, be learning how to be alone with yourself comfortably uh, is an important piece of that. <coughs> be willing to learn. You know, the word that uh, Mahasi that Mahasi Sayadaw's uh, admonition was um, used here, the translation of it, was be docile. I don't know about you, but I heard the word docile and I thought, docile? That's something like a cow, right? You know, just a cow is just kind of hanging out in the pasture, looking over the fence, docile. like, uh. And that's not what docile means at all. Docile means be willing to learn from others. Be, be teachable, so that when you have a teacher, are you in a relationship with them in such a way that you can actually hear their teaching? Even if it's pointing to something that needs correction in your own thinking or in your own practice. And I think that um, sometimes we want teaching but we want to hear the teachings, but we don't really take them in. So I would just ask you to, to really look in your own heart, look in your own mind, to when you, when you feel this skepticism, or you feel particularly put out by, or you feel imposed on by some teaching. Not that you should kind of think it's wrong, but just notice what is this posture of mind that is unable, unwilling to take in uh, the teachings or instruction that might be um, not what you expect, not what you want, uh, something you don't understand? And I'm not saying that you should just kind of do it anyway, but recognize this quality of mind that is stiff. Stiff-minded, where the mind can't really open to and take in um, what is being offered. And then he goes on to say, seek good friends. Imagine. Imagine that we somehow could get the instruction and get a, get a, get a snapshot of what's involved in 
really purifying the mind and purifying our understanding. And then we were abandoned to do it on our own. We would never be able to do this practice without others. Without the support of others who are also aspiring or have some either greater experience or some encouraging experience to share. If we had to do this alone, it would be just... harder than it is. I mean, it's hard. It's hard. But it would be just hard, impossible to, to find the inner strength uh, without the companionship of others that are on the path or aspiring to the, in, in the same direction that we are and that have some understanding. And so this seeking good friends is really... Um, Finding, finding those that you feel aligned with. And it's, not, it's not that we need a lot of friends. We just need some. Even one that we can confide in, that we can share our difficulties, our challenges, our, what we don't understand, that we can be inspired by. Who is it in your life that calls forth the best within you? Who is it that you seek guidance and counsel from? Who is it that you would care how they think about you? That's your community. That's your spiritual community. It's not necessarily a geographic community. It's not necessarily a kind of an affiliation. It's those people that you, that you really value, that you care how they think about you, that you would ask for advice or care uh, what they suggested, or those who call forth the best in, within you. When I think of those people in my life, of course, there's, I have a lot. Um, but when I think of, Sa- of Sairu Pandita, who is my monastic teacher, I don't think of him as like a good friend, like a buddy, a, ha- a hangout buddy, but is definitely somebody who calls forth the best within me, and someone whose counsel I trusted, and someone who I really care how they think about me. And the, the, the thing that I most respect him for is that he understood, he understands the mind in a way that I did not. And he was willing to encourage me to practice so that I could understand the mind like he did. But it involved a tremendous amount of suffering because he knows that there is the potential to suffer within the mind. There are seeds of suffering just waiting to sprout when conditions are are right. And until we discover them, until we we see, oh, here's a place where I suffer, we can't do anything about it. But once we do recognize, oh, this is how I suffer, or this is a time or situation or conditions when I suffer, then we can do something about it. 
And having someone, having a friend who can point that out to you is invaluable. Invaluable. You can't pay someone enough for what it's worth to help to help you recognize the source of your own suffering. Because true compassion, of course, is to to relieve suffering, isn't it? But it's not just kind of a soothing suffering, but it's really to understand for yourself where it is within your own heart that you suffer so that you can do something about it for yourself. And while I've heard criticism of Saito Bandita because he's not very gentle and sometimes people felt that he's pretty uncompassionate or pretty demanding and even harsh, uh, in the end, practicing with him does purify a lot of suffering. And that's the goal of compassion, is to relieve suffering. And so I could see that... um, his behavior and his demands and his uh, the way he made me practice while I did experience a lot of suffering was in the end relieving of that suffering. So when you look for a good friend, when you look for your, your spiritual um, cohort, when you, when you look for, when you identify with, who is it that you're going to trust to guide your life to guide your practice. Consider, really, what it is you're asking of them. Those are the six factors. To let there be only a few things you attend to, a few words that you speak, a few hours that you spend sleeping, love solitude, be willing to learn and seek good friends. These are the six factors contributing to good dhammas. Now, good dhammas are anything from Awareness to tranquility to joy, bliss, peace. Understanding from um, the development of insight and the realization of the unconditioned. So when we talk about good dharmas, we're talking about everything from uh, putting aside any of the torments to the end of the Buddha's uh, third noble truth, the goal of of practice is to uh, be free of suffering. There's more Um, later. (laughs) I wanted to take the time this evening to to begin to just um, put the practice that we're doing in here in a broader perspective. Sometimes just in the the continuity of um, trying to be aware and trying to be mindful and trying to um, develop the momentum uh, we lose we lose sight of why why we're doing this and, and the bigger picture, and I think it's important to understand that this is just one arena of the the teachings of the Buddha. It's an important arena, and it's an arena that uh, or it's a it's a, a practice that uh, is important and valuable in all of our uh, spiritual journey. But to just expand the scope of your understanding of how to apply or the benefit of awareness and understanding. It's important to do that.
this center or this retreat should be a quiet place where we strengthen our faith, practice generosity, live in harmony, calm and liberate the mind. So may we be encouraged to make best use of our time here, understanding that uh, it is possible to develop the mind and it is possible to be free of suffering. Let's sit for a moment and let the words quiet down.